0: i to read uh, the passage for us. We're actually going to begin in chapter 13, and let me encourage you then to stand and to read. Is that incorrect? June 11th. Oh, June 11th. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the date is wrong there for Home Group North too. All right, it's this Friday. That would be a long time. Yes, to it would be house. a long wait. All right, so we're going to begin reading. Um, at uh, chapter 13 and verse 36 okay
1: Simon Peter said to him Lord where are you going Jesus answered him where I am going you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward Peter said to him Lord why can I not follow you now I will lay down my life for you Jesus answered will you lay down your life for me Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us.
0: Would you join me in a word of prayer, please? Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the the privilege of gathering together. Lord, for the great opportunity that we have to praise you. Lord, to fellowship because of you. And Lord, now to feed on your word. And Lord, be ministered to by you, Lord, through your messenger. And I just ask, Lord, today that you would allow me to simply reflect, Lord, your truth. That we would be strengthened and encouraged by it. Um, and, Lord, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son. Lord, um, we, we need you. i uh, just been listening and talking to people about some circumstances throughout the week, Lord. And uh, it certainly is evident that, um, that you are a God who provides and protects and cares. And yet, at the same time, Lord, you are not one um, who removes trouble and difficulty from our lives. Uh, just like we sang the song, Lord, there is toil, there is struggle, and yet there is peace and rest. And uh, Lord, all those things are, are part of living. And Lord, help us today to get some perspective, and Lord, to allow um, you to draw us into your text, and to feed us and to nourish us. And Lord, would you accomplish your will now? We ask in your precious, holy name, Amen. Um, one of the things that I find as a pastor, it's actually a very daunting, fearful thing is that God often will use the events of my week to prepare me to preach God's Word. And That is not always fun, um, because there are experiences I don't want to go through, but as I look back on the week, I'm saying, Okay, Lord, you, you had that happen because you want me to understand what it is I'm going to stand up in front of these people and say. And uh, so, you know, this week, friends, for me, has been a week of trouble um, in a number of different ways. You know, we had a, a car that broke down. Um, for me, it was a short week because we had Monday, we had Tuesday, was New Year's Day. And, of course, then I'm going to jump in on, on Wednesday. But we were also trying to figure out the office and and uh all that kind of stuff and my priority honestly guys is I want to get into the word and I want to make sure that I'm ready to deliver God's truth to you on Sunday morning to me that's God's highest calling for me as your pastor teacher is to make sure that the word of God is being ministered faithfully and so I, I you know I'm struggling to do that having difficulty with the text and all these different things are happening and it's it was just just kind of a very very difficult week and then You know, the car breaks down, and I have to take time to go do that and and, uh, get it to the place, and, you know, God, of course, provides in all that, and then um, I'm I'm trying to print up the bulletin, and things won't work, and I was waiting to to get the handout that you have in front of you here and figure out exactly how I wanted to to lay that out, and I left that late deliberately because I was still wrestling with some things in this text, And, and so I'm this morning printing up the handout, but I can't print it. It's just going all garbly on me, and it's just really, really frustrating. And then um, I was trying to transfer my notes from my computer to my iPad here, because this is what I used to, to to kind of work from on a, on a Sunday morning. And it just, it wasn't transferring like it normally does. It's like everything was just like, you know, problem, problem, problem. Trouble, trouble, trouble. And then I come in this morning, and I ask someone, so how was your New Year's? And they said, ah, it wasn't good. And they started to tell me the story of what happened. And I'm just just reminded that life is full of trouble, is it not? Now, one of the things that I think is important, Elia mentioned it a little bit earlier, is that that for some reason God has been impressing on us over the past few weeks this theme of trouble. I didn't plan personally to go into the Christmas season thinking about trouble, and yet it it was what was there. It was part of the theme. If you remember... Um, we find Zechariah, who is surprised while he's in the middle of doing his priestly duty by an angel. And he is troubled. And then Mary has an encounter with Gabriel, and she is troubled at the news that she hears. Now, we didn't study this, but remember what Herod is thinking when the wise men come? What does it say? He's troubled, and all of Jerusalem, too. And then a few weeks ago, in chapter 13, we find Jesus is also troubled. In fact, chapter 11, we find Jesus troubled because he comes to a scene where Mary is weeping because of the death of Lazarus. And Jesus is troubled by the whole scenario and the effect of sin and what death is and the sorrow that it brings And then in chapter 13, he's in the upper room and he's washed the disciples' feet and he is troubled in his spirit because he is about to talk about betrayal. And friends, there's this theme of trouble that God is having us sort through. For whatever reason, he is God. He can do what he wants, right? And I'm just thinking to myself, maybe he wants us to pay attention to this theme. Because we come into this passage now, John chapter 14, and we find that the disciples are troubled. In fact, this idea of trouble is a, or two bookends to this particular text. Look, if you would please, at verse 1 Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus is, is appealing to the fact, hey, listen, you are troubled, don't be troubled. So certainly they were troubled. And then at the end of Verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 27: Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Do I give it? To, give to you. Let not your heart, hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So there's this, this theme of trouble. Now, why are the disciples troubled? What is what is it that, in their particular context, that is causing this trouble? And I would say I, I have six things I just jotted down here, just flowing from the text and a couple from other passages. Number one, um, Jesus is going away. I mean, here's their master, here's the one that draw them, drew them together to be this this band of disciples, and now Jesus is going away. That's trouble for them. They've leaned on him. They've, you know, they've turned to him. They've rested in his care. They've listened to his teaching. They've seen him in action. I mean, he's not just some, you know, another one of the guys. He's the leader, right? He's going away. Jesus also said that he was going to die. Oh, wait a second. There's one thing to go away, but you mean you're going to die too? That's kind of a permanent loss. The third thing is that he's going to be betrayed. I mean, it's bad enough that he's going away. He's going to have to die, but... You're saying one of us is going to betray you? That's pretty troubling. And then, in the passage we just read here, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me. There's the possibility of denying you, the master, after being with you for so long. And all these things are bouncing around their head that Jesus is saying, not quite comprehending the implications of all those things. And then in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31 and 32, it says this Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so now we have this kind of introduction of this person, Satan, into the mix, that he is now against them. Opposition, spiritual opposition. So. Luke is telling us that Satan would work against them. And finally, we're told in the Gospels that some would fall away. Now friends, there's just just context of trouble, context of difficulty, context of uncertainty. So these were very troubling times for the disciples. Their master, who had been with them for three years, had taught them, had nurtured them, had ministered with them, and love them was going away. Now, not only was this a time of trouble, but it was also a time of transition for them. Now, friends, transition is often very troubling, right? It comes with all sorts of different circumstances, struggles, adjustments. And oftentimes, we just don't like transition. We would just rather keep it, status quo without any change. Even if change is for the better, we're comfortable where we are. And sometimes God has to push us to move us for our own benefit. And so this is a time of transition. Notice verse 2. Jesus says in that verse, I am going. In my, house, my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He's going. Now... Jump down, if you would please, to verse 30. He says, I will no longer wo- talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. I'm going, and the ruler of this world is coming. There is good news, right? <laughs> wow. But then look at verse 31. But I, as the Father, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world... know that I love the Father, and this is what he says to the disciples, let us go from here. I'm going, the rule of this world is coming, and after he talks to them in this this wonderful tender upper room uh, context, he tells his disciples, now let's get up and go. So there's movement going on in this passage. Jesus is getting them to a place. He's trying to minister to their souls in such a way that they will press on being his disciples. So we have a context of trouble and transition, and I'm also going to say spiritual opposition that sets the stage for what Jesus is about to say. And This is the night before Jesus' departure in which... Well, that we know is what's called the passion, that time of arrest, trial, suffering, and crucifixion. And here in the upper room, we have Jesus offering his his final tender words before those passion events. So when we come to John 14, 6, probably you might want to say the, the, the verse of Scripture that jumps out of this text that we know that we could just be drawn to, understandably so, it says there... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must see them in their right context. These words are not words of confrontation. These are words of comfort. These are words of assurance. So we must be careful not to obnoxiously hammer home what Jesus says here but counsel with the comforting words those who are experiencing trouble, transition, and spiritual opposition in their lives. Now, friends, listen, I've been in context where people have been so zealous for the gospel and zealous for conversions and zealous to stand up for God that they'll stand up and yell and scream, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That is not the tone of these words. Now there's a time to stand tall and firm with conviction and be bold but these words are words to minister to the soul. To people who are struggling because of trouble. Who are going through transition and who are experiencing some kind of spiritual opposition. And Friends, guess what? That's All of us. There's not a one of us that isn't experiencing some kind of trouble. There's not a one of us that isn't kind of going through this ebb and flow of different transitions in our lives. All of us are experiencing spiritual opposition. If you sin, you are experiencing spiritual opposition. We enter into this text here with the disciples saying, we need counsel from you, Jesus. so like the disciples, we face all these things in a similar way. And it's it's in times of trouble and transition that we are often clouded by the pressure of that trouble and transition to abandon Christ and the gospel and to be led away by the deceiver. We must must just grab a hold of Christ in this passage and learn from him today. Because, friends, you know what it's like when trouble consumes you and you respond not in a spiritual way, in a God-honoring way, but your flesh kicks in. Other people might say, hey, that is right, that is good, that's what you should do. But you know in your heart, I'm not honoring God. And Jesus here is saying to his disciples, listen, I have something to say to you in the midst of this context. And I, I, I want you to be doing my will. Hear what I have to say. And so this morning for us, Jesus will counsel us with his words and he will, he will offer us four promises to comfort troubled hearts. Four promises to comfort troubled hearts. Now each Say four promises to comfort troubled disciples. Each of Jesus' responses is an answer to a troubled question. When you're going through difficulty, do you not have questions? Now, what's what's wonderful in this particular text, the greater text here, is that the disciples sitting in the upper room with Jesus are doing what? They're kind of going like, "I, I don't I don't get this. And they ask questions. Peter asks. Where are you going? Thomas asks, how can we know the way? Philip asks, just show us the Father and it will be enough. A little later on in next week's message, Judas, not says, Lord, how is it that, that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? These are legitimate, good Healthy questions. The disciples were in this process of growth with Christ. This is their last moment of teaching in this discipleship relationship. Certainly, Jesus is going to come back and he will be with them a short while, then he'll ascend into heaven. There's some things he says there, but for his relationship here with the disciples before his death. This is is it. And they have questions. So friends, it's not wrong to have questions. In fact, if someone has questions, good, sound, genuine, heartfelt questions, we, if we know the answer to those questions, or even if we don't, should receive those questions and help people sort through those questions. Not be offended at those questions. And if we don't know the answer, that's okay. That doesn't change the status of who's in control of the universe, does it? My inability to answer the question doesn't mean I guess God's not on his throne anymore. No, he's still on his throne. I'm the knucklehead. So these are all great questions, and they're questions that come out of troubled and confused hearts that are in transition. So the first one here, to the question from Peter, Jesus replies, You have a place in heaven. You have a prepared place. I just want to go back now and just read this account. And I want you to think about this prepared place. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. But notice right away in the flow here, let not your heart be troubled. (laughs) Peter, you're going to deny me, but let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. So so Peter, understand this. Where I'm going, you cannot come, because the path from me to the Father's house goes via my suffering on the cross. The way that Jesus had to go Peter could not go because the way Jesus had to go was the way through the cross. Peter couldn't go through the cross. There's only one person who satisfies all the requirements to be that sacrifice once for all. Book of Hebrews. That's Christ on the cross. He had to go, and then ultimately from there he would go to his father's house. So this is not your way, Peter, but this is my way, but When I get there, I will prepare a room for you. But notice the room, this place, is already in heaven, but Jesus is going to prepare it. He's not going to create it. He's not going to build it, but to prepare it. It's already there. Now just get this point of theology. If you're a child of God, that room is already there for you. And that is a confidence that we have as God's children. The promise of a heavenly place, the promise of a heavenly room in the Father's house. That's a way of saying in heaven. Now, we must not be overwhelmed by the place. And this is where you know, the translation of the King James version, you know, in my Father's house are what? Many... Mansions. Oh, I go to heaven. I'm going to get a mansion. It's going to have, you know, four garages. It's going to have, you know, multiple, you know, windows all over the place so I can look outside. And in the living room, it's going to have a, you know, a, an 80 inch, you know, divine plasma screen TV. All the bedrooms have silk, you know, pillows and all this kind of stuff. And we can get so out of kilter thinking about heaven by virtue of stuff. When that, friends, is not the motivation that God gives us for why he's going to heaven. Notice, if you would please, as disciples, you and I have the promise that we have a room in the Father's house There's no trouble, there's no transition, there's no spiritual opposition that will ever change that reality for the child of God. That room is prepared for you. And that's why this passage is so comforting at funerals. Because we know if this person was a believer that they are now inhabiting that room that has been prepared for them. But it's not the inhabiting of the room itself that really is the focus and the attention. It's what Jesus says about That, notice if you would please, verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. The whole point of him going and preparing is that when you arrive in the Father's house, he will be present with you. Heaven's not about the pearly gates and the gemstone, you know, uh, the paths and all that kind of stuff and the jewels that's there heaven is about being with jesus that's the draw it's not oh i can't wait to get to heaven i can play golf every day you won't care about golf what you'll care about is christ now it's hard for us to comprehend let's just be honest it's hard for us to think about so i'm just going to be like contemplating christ It's hard for us to realize, but the presence of Jesus, it is in his presence where we are satisfied. It is in his presence where we are comforted and we are assured and we find joy and we are adoring and praising him. There's something about heaven and, and Jesus being there that is really the draw. And that's what Jesus is driving out here. So we have a prepared place in the Father's house to enjoy his presence. Once again, and specifically to the disciples, he is leaving. He's physically leaving, right? And he's saying to them, listen, you're going to come when I get there after it's prepared. And you're going to come with me. And we're going to abide together. That's just a wonderful reality. And Friends, this is a promise that we have. You're going through trouble. Just remember this. Your, your, (laughs) Your reservation in heaven with Jesus never changes. That is a promise that we have. No matter what the trouble is on this earth, that is certain. Second one, and this is an answer to the question that now is given by Thomas. And he says that Jesus is going to say for us, you have an exclusive way. So verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some people have said this is either the first or second verse that they've memorized from the Bible. So this is, this is really a well-known text of Scripture. But let's, let's keep it in its context, okay, um, before we kind of go other places with it. Thomas is, is, is typically portrayed in the Gospels as a loyal, faithful disciple. He's a little bit of a skeptic at times. But get this, he wasn't just going to sit there when he had no clue what Jesus was on about. He wasn't just going to sit there and nod his head as if he was understanding completely, you know, pretending that he was totally with Jesus when he was not. He wasn't going to do that. He had to know. So he speaks up and asks, "Master, we don't know the destination." So if we don't know the destination, how can we know the way? I'm going. Great. And where are you going? Jesus has actually already said something about that, right? I'm going to my father's house. to am going to be with my father. Somehow that was something that just kind of passed Thomas. He didn't comprehend that. But remember, Jesus has already told the disciples that all these things would now make sense when? Afterward. Even the passages we read there in Luke about Peter and Satan wanting to sift him as wheat. Afterward, he said, you'll understand this. There's that theme in John again. Afterward, you don't have full comprehension. Oh, all the data's there, but you're just not putting it all together. But afterwards, it'll click and you'll be aware of what's happening. So, Thomas here is asking genuinely, we don't understand the way because we don't even understand where the destination is. And Jesus' response brings forth for us both comfort and. And controversy. Look at verse 6 again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Comfort is found in the first part. Controversy is found in the second part. So let's first of all look at the first part. Um, the, The language of affirmation is being used here. Jesus says that he is the way. He is the way. He is the one that makes the Father accessible. He is the one who is the, the truth. He is the one that illuminates and, and exposes what God says and reveals that to us. It's not just, though, that he speaks the truth. It is that he is the truth. He is also the life. He is the one who brings about regeneration. He is the emancipator of death. The one who brings Life, or breathes life into dead souls. Life that is abundant, life that is everlasting. We know that's part of the theme here that John is trying to get at, you know, believing. Here's the evidence, to believe, ultimately to have life. So, let's turn this around a little bit. Why would these statements be comforting to these disciples? In the midst of trouble, you want to be affirmed. You want to be encouraged. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the one through which you can access the Father. I am the one who is providing all the truth that you need. I am the one who is giving you life. He's our way. He's our truth. He is our life. He is our true and living way, you might say. So the path. Through the trouble and transition is His path. It is guided by His truth. And we are then fed by this ongoing abundant life. If you've ever come to me for counseling, I I give you this this picture of trouble by, by these four circles. Circle number one is a problem. It's one way you can handle problems in life. And that is you have a tendency to give up. So, you, you stop before you even get there. It's too big. Can't handle it. It's, you know, I just give up. I throw in the towel. I'm done. The next circle is another problem, another trouble. And that one, uh, I think I'm slick. I'm going to find some way to get around it. I'm going to try and find some way to avoid the problem. And so I, I, I try and do that. The next one is going to be this big problem. And because of this problem, and I'm not handling it God's way, I, I, I allow my sinful flesh to kick in and I create more problems. I lie. I cheat. I. You know, I, um, whatever it might be, uh, you know, I fail to do what God wants me to do. And I, I add all these extra things rather than dealing with the problem. What Jesus here is saying to his disciples is, listen, don't go that route. The route that you need to go is through me. And the path that I have for you although it may be difficult, although it may be a struggle, may have hardships, you may be confused, you may be discouraged, but keep pressing on through the path that I have for you because I am that way, I am the truth that will guide you, and I am the life that matures you toward Christ's likeness The language of affirmation. So remember, you can face that problem in trial. He will chart the way. He will guide you with his truth. He will continue to grow you toward maturity. And then we move to the controversial part. It's a language of exclusivity. Now, friends, if there's, if there's anything in this world that is controversial about what it means to follow Christ, this is it. There's not much more offensive truth in the word of God than the exclusive claim Jesus makes to be the only way to God. Many in our culture are highly offended by such a statement. In their eyes, it's narrow-minded. It's elitist. It is too dogmatic for Jesus to make a statement like this. And so they reject Christianity because it is an elitist religion. It's a dogmatic religion religion It's not accepting of others, at least in their thinking. But friends, let's move from the culture into the church. Because even within the church, there is this desire to move away from exclusive language like this. Oh, we want Jesus. We want Christianity. We want the Beatitudes. We want those things that might want to say are popular and, and helpful and and might want to say cultural Christianity, but we don't want the exclusive claims of Jesus. They'll wobble on those, and they want us to think a little bit broader. In fact, there are those within, might want to say, the broad umbrella of Christianity that will say, listen, other religions also have Christ. It's just that he's hidden back behind the scenes, but, but the essence of Christ is there, and so you can get to the Father through Islam, you can get to the Father through Buddhism, you can get to the Father through Hinduism, just like you can through Christianity. Oh, he's hidden, but he's there. Now, friends, understand this. You cannot claim to be a Christian and at the same time deny Jesus' words here. It is Christianity that is exclusive, not because of the teaching of the church, And not because of the confessions of faith that have been laid out during the age of the church. Christianity is exclusive because Jesus makes the claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, absolutely no one comes to the Father except through me. It's an exclusive statement. Now, friends, if, if you have a problem with that exclusivity, please hear this. You don't have a problem with me. You don't have a problem with the church. You don't have a problem with doctrinal statements. You have a problem with the one who calls himself the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. All right, the Son of Man. He is God himself. He makes that claim. So you can't say, I believe you, but I don't believe you. You can't have both. He either means what he says, or he doesn't. Now this is the essence of what John has been revealing in the gospel. Let me just give you some, some pictures of that. I am the bread of life. What is he saying? Only feeding on me will bring satisfaction. I am the living water. What he means by that is only drinking on me will satisfy your thirst. I am the door to the sheepfold. I'm not one of many. I am the door. And only through me can you enter the kingdom. I am the light of the world. Only I can open up your eyes so that you can see. All of these statements are statements of exclusivity. It's who Jesus is. That's what he claims. He's never pretended anything else. He's been very clear about it. So to say that there are many ways to get to heaven is to completely deny the teaching and the heart and the points that Jesus makes as he is ministering on this earth that are recorded for us in the Gospels. Now, we, we don't need to shout this obnoxiously, like I was saying earlier, but we need to minister these truths as a healing balm to the troubled soul. He's speaking to his disciples. And Jesus speaks now to us, and he says, listen, I am, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, friends, hear this. There is a huge tendency for us when we're going through trials and difficulties to abandon Jesus or to find other solutions other than Scripture. Other than God's revealed way. And the wise counsel that Jesus is giving us, listen, e- even when you're going through these times of difficulty, remember me and remember that the way that I am presenting is the only true way. All of the ways will lead to a dead end and will lead to more trouble. It is only in me and through me that you will find true and total satisfaction and you will arrive at your appropriate destination. Now, in response to Philip, in response to Philip, the third thing here is you have a sufficient Savior. And these kind of build on each other as we move in here. But there's something about Philip's question now that that prompts Jesus to give a fuller answer. And we're actually going to divide it into two two different parts here. But verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know Him, or you do know Him, and have seen Him. Just pause there. There have been a number of occasions in the Gospels when Jesus has the disciples with Him as well as when He's been interacting with the Pharisees that He's made it a strong case and a strong argument to reveal Himself as being united with the Father and identifying Himself as God. So what He's saying here is not new information. He is reminding them of things that he has already said so what philip is asking for here is to have a face-to-face encounter with the father philip said to him lord show us the father and it is enough for us let me paraphrase that lord just do some miraculous thing show us your power show us your your glory again so that that will be sufficient and we will know something like what Moses experienced at the burning bush, or something like Elijah experienced at Mount Horeb when, when, when God revealed his afterglow to Elijah. And it's oftentimes in trouble and transition that we want assurance from God that he is still present and at work in our lives. And so we, we want assurance that he hasn't abandoned us. And so we tend to look for divine signs, not divine signs that are revealed in Scripture, but divine signs of our own making, God, I'm having really trouble, real trouble today, and so I'm going outside, and I look up into the sky, and there's a cloud, and the cloud is in the shape of you know, a dollar bill, and it means that God is going to provide the money that I need. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the sign and the encouragement. You see, it's, it's stuff like that, and we get excited about that kind of stuff. And Philip is, is yearning for some kind of a greater assurance. Now, hear this. It's not wrong to want that assurance. Okay, that's the, that's the tone in this passage. But what is the assurance that Jesus gives? He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? The you, by the way, here is plural. Philip is asking the question. Jesus is responding to all the disciples. Three years, Philip, and you have... You haven't gotten it yet. I've been with you. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my words. I've rescued you. I've taught you. I've empowered you. I've been here. So let me remind you of something. what Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, you've seen me, right? Three years. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now, he's just repeating what he's already said. He's reminding him of what he's already said. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So Jesus is telling his disciples that they don't, need some kind of supernatural experience they have all they need in jesus he friends is sufficient it's not jesus plus experience is sufficient it's jesus is sufficient now listen following jesus means that there will be in life experiences There are times when the truth of God's word just rises up and it's exactly the balm you need for your soul. And you're like, Lord, thank you for that. I needed that. That is a divine experience, but it is not void of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. So this is where John's argument goes right back to the prologue where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You've seen me. You have enough. This is an incredibly unique relationship. They are one. Whoever has seen Christ has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. These are all statements that are used to describe this relationship. But get this Jesus is not the Father. But what he, the Father, says Jesus does. And so if you want to see the Father, you simply need to look at Jesus. Listen, you don't need a sensational encounter with the Father because for the last three years you have been having an encounter with me, Jesus says to his disciples. So what does he say? He says, listen to my words. Listen to my words. Secondly, he says, if that isn't sufficient, look at my works." Now friends, there's there's wise counsel for us here. In those times of difficulty, in those times of trial, in those times of struggle, um, it's important for us not to say, God, just just show me yourself. Show me yourself. I I need to feel you. I need to know you're there. I need to have some tangible way of, of comprehending that you haven't abandoned me. Question, has he abandoned you? See, you're just trying to Provide an assurance on yourself. And oftentimes, what happens is we create scenarios that aren't necessarily God demonstrating Himself, but there are ways that we just kind of bring satisfaction to ourselves. What Jesus is saying here is this, and for us, this is really important. Everything you need about me, every assurance you need from me, is found right here in the Gospels. You want to see Jesus? You want to know who God is and what He's doing? It's right here. But friends, we're living in an age where it's like, yeah, I love the Bible. It's a great book, and I just love teaching from the Word of God, but I don't read it. And if I don't read it, then what happens? When difficulties come, I am looking for Other ways for God to actually communicate with me and give me assurance rather than believing what God clearly says in His Word. How is it that you and I know that Jesus is with us? Can you feel Him? Is it that tingly feeling that you have right now? Is that what it is? Is it the cold that's brushing up your back? We're all experiencing that. It's not Jesus. But you understand what I'm saying? How how do you measure that? You know, because of proposition truth that is revealed to us through the word word of God. God has revealed his word to us so that we can live. We don't need some kind of a sensational thing. What we need to do is to look at what has already been revealed. And Jesus has revealed himself. And what He has revealed shows that He is a sufficient Savior. Now, friends, oftentimes we want to avoid doing the hard work. We want to avoid meditating on Scripture. Sometimes we we fear it. We just, I can't comprehend it. And so we end up believing things that Scripture doesn't even teach, thinking that they do, because we don't take the time to study God's Word and get clarification on it. And we would rather somehow go to some might want to say bat phone remember remember batman he had that red phone and it was only you know bat phone right there to the commissioner's office like we, we kind of want this bat phone to god in our new office i will have a bat phone to god just so you know that okay we're installing it um, if you want to borrow it no listen this is it Now, I'm not, I don't want to move away because we're going to get into the Holy Spirit next week. It is the Holy Spirit that guides us through his word, okay? And we're going to talk here just a minute about the the ministry of prayer and how that all interacts here. But listen, guys, we we cannot grow and mature unless this is a priority in our lives. So, as we continue, not only do you have a, a sufficient Savior, but you also have a divine purpose. Even your trouble. Let me ask you this question. The transition the disciples were going through, the trouble they were, they were experiencing at that point in time, call it what you want, a variety of things, was that not all part of God's plan? Some of it was ugly, right? How, I mean, betrayal? Denial? Opposition? Crucifixion? Scattering? Persecution? All that's part of God's plan? So your trouble, because it's trouble, does not necessarily mean it's not God's will. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, in the, the, the context here, this is a context of promise. Jesus gives his disciples some, some great perspective. There will be trouble, but when he is gone, they will do greater works. His going is necessary for the ushering in of greater works. I'm going but if you believe me and you believe in me those who believe in me will be the Avenue will be the channel will be the vehicle for greater works now the greater here is not talking about greater in wonder okay it's not like we have this this new latest you know special faith healer he's coming in and he's going great wonders you're never gonna outdo God right they're not gonna outdo Jesus as far as wonder or power. But the greater that's being talked about here is the greater in number, the greater in pervasiveness. When Jesus preached to the multitude, what did the multitude do? They got hungry. We need food. They followed for a while. He turns to them and says, if you want to follow me and be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And they were all like, see ya. The result of Jesus' teaching and ministry on the earth, while he was on the earth, impacted a small amount of people. But through the disciples, who then would be the apostles, the greater work was established. That is the book of Acts. Greater work, greater number, greater pervasiveness. The spread of the gospel through the disciples, the multiply, multiplied conversions all over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus said. That's what he commanded. That's what he encouraged. and That's what he wanted. So the work then would go on through them. So Jesus counsels us that although he is going, although there is trouble, that those who believe in him will then be doing the works so he wants us then to do the works. So he's saying to his disciples, listen, you have a purpose. This is trouble. This is transition. This is opposition. But I have something for you to do. I'm going away. And my going away now provides an opportunity for you now to step into the gap and be used. And by the way, when you are being used, I am working through you. And we'll he gets into that a little later in the chapter. And not only do the works here. But in doing the works, he also is calling us to pray. Now, in serving Jesus, you and I will be sustained and successful when we exercise prayer in his name. Just go back and just read what it says there. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the the qualifier here is what? In my name. So the question is then, what is in my name? Name. Psalm 25, verse 11, Just listen. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's for it is great. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O Lord, or sorry, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. In other words, his reputation is on the line. And his reputation is fashioned by his will and by his character. So when we pray, and we're praying according to his name or in his name, we are praying in such a way that our prayers are consistent with his purpose and plans, with his character. And when we pray that way, he promises what? That he will do it. Now, this is not us manipulating God. This is us simply affirming, Jesus, this is what you promised, and so I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to press on. So when we pray, it's not about, you know, I want want that bigger this or bigger that or selfish thing, whatever it might be. That's not what Jesus has on his mind at all. This all is in the context of ministry. Pray in my name. Pray according to my name. Pray because of my name. Pray in conformity to my very nature and my reputation. Whatever you do in my name, or ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And get this, verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It is perfectly appropriate to address Jesus in your prayers, according to this passage. Now friends, this is important for we who are troubled in transition, facing opposition, these are words are helpful. These, these, these counsels are there to encourage us. To, to know that we have a secure room in heaven where we will commune and fellowship with Jesus is a promise that keeps perspective of what we're going through. The promise that is the way, although it may be exclusive, although many people may reject it, that embracing that way will get me to the Father is a confidence that allows me to face my trouble and my trial and persevere. Knowing that he is sufficient and sovereign, he is God, and he is the one who then is the authority and the one who's carrying out all these things in my life, is a vehicle then for me to be consistent and to, to, to barrel ahead for his glory. And knowing, this last one here, that there is a divine purpose. These things aren't just happening haphazardly that he is at work in them, bad things, good things, that in the midst of doing all that, he wants me to lean on him, be satisfied by him. I just want to briefly um, just highlight three um, concluding thoughts, right? Number one, there is no substitute for Jesus. There is no substitute for Jesus. When we are going through trials, friends, when we're going through trouble, we are so tempted to look at substitutes as providing some answer, satisfaction. Jesus is screaming to his disciples and to us from this passage in a tender, loving way, there's no substitute for me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one Gifts gets to the Father except through me. The second one is this. The Christian life is a constant fight against unbelief. What, is this, what does chapter 14 begin with? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I would encourage you to go back to this passage and just see all the different uses of the word belief. Believe. He calls us to Believe. But our battle is we don't feel like believing at that point in time. We feel like we want something more. We feel like what Jesus is offering isn't sufficient. Or I can't do that. If Jesus commands us, do you think he understands whether we can do it or not? Of course he does. We believe his promises. We believe his person. We believe that there is power in doing his will. The third thing, the best way to believe is to become a humble and eager student of the word. Now, by that statement, I do not mean, hear this, I do not mean that putting words of scripture into the head somehow then transforms into godliness, okay? Not saying that memorizing portions of scripture makes you godly. What I am saying is someone who is hungry for God, who wants to do the Father's will, is going to have an attitude of humility and eagerness and be in the Word of God saying, God, teach me, shape me, mold me, speak to me through your Word so that when I am in the trial, in the difficulty, in the struggle, it is you that I'm listening to. It is you that is counseling me, not some idea out there that might be in the Word of God, but the truth of the Word of God is is bearing hard and with, with precious guidance and counsel for my particular need. And Friends, I just encourage you, become a humble student and an eager student of the Word of God. Now, what does that mean? It means you must be reading it. It means you must be contemplating it, uh, meditating on it, thinking it through. It means b- being systematic by, by, by looking at certain subjects and themes and just understanding what God says about those things. It means as you participate in a, in a home group that you're asking questions, you're thinking through the questions that are being asked in such a way that you're trying to take the truth of God and apply it specifically to your life and context. I can't do that here with all, all of you in this room. I can give you general approaches and ways that you can handle things, but... It's taking God's word and saying specifically, what does that mean in my particular context? You see, it's the word of God then that speaks. And friends, listen, this is what Gateway Bible Church is about. We exist to know, apply, and proclaim the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that is in the word of God, but it is the word of God that presents for us the gospel. We believe that the word of God, because the gospel is in the word of God, is the means by which we are going to minister and we're going to grow his kingdom. Notice I didn't say the physical church. And so we're saying it's the ministry of the word. Well, if we're going to be ministers of the word, not just me as a pastor, but you as a believer, as a follower, as a disciple, that means you need to be growing in your understanding of the word. And we're all at different levels of that we all need to be encouraging one another in that but the fruit of that friends is that you will be less troubled in your heart because you are fighting unbelief with the word of god and when you're fighting unbelief with the word of god you are more likely not to look for substitutes and rest completely and totally on jesus who is your sufficiency Lord, help us today as we contemplate the words and the counsel, Lord, that you have given to your disciples. For we are troubled. I'm sure, Lord, if we just would walk just slowly in our memory over this last week, Lord, we could identify not a handful, but just a multitude of, of troubled circumstances. Some would be seemingly insignificant. Some would be more significant. And, Lord, we bring all that to our thoughts this morning. We say, Lord, we want to believe you. And we want to believe your promises, Lord. And we thank you for your counsel for our troubled hearts. But, Lord, we are reminded this morning that all that you say, all that you do, Lord, has has taken place because of the way that you had to go, Lord. You had to go via the cross. And, Lord, on that cross, you died and you took upon yourself the sin of mankind. And as a result, Lord, you, you ushered in new life. And we who have embraced you as our Lord and Savior, Lord, we who are the recipients of your grace this morning, want to celebrate who you are and what you've done. So, Lord, help us to contemplate what you've done in your body and what you've done by shedding your blood. And, Lord, to do that in such a way that is an act of worship and praise to you, but, Lord, is also a means by which you can strengthen us and encourage us in our own Christian walk for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.